Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Y'all doing good? It's going to be a good day. We've got trunk or treat later today. Yeah, but now we're going to get in the Word. It's been a great day of worship. Appreciate our band. Appreciate uh, them leading us uh, in worship through song this morning. But 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where we're going to be. You know, if you ever notice at the end of a football game or a baseball game, a televised game, especially when uh, there are uh, high stakes involved, that at the conclusion of that game, the camera always zooms in on the expressions of those who won the game. We like to see them celebrate, right? But if you also notice that the camera zooms in on those who lost, right? For some reason, we like to see the look of defeat on those who lose, right? Some folks were, uh, uh, we were watching some people with that expression yesterday, weren't we? Uh, so, uh, but th- th- this is why I bring that up. Because as I've had a lot of conversations with believers, especially over this last year and a half, uh, with, as I've, I've looked and just observed, I, I've noticed that there's a lot of believers that walk around like that with that look of defeat on their face. You know, I'm not sure where you're at this morning. I'm not sure how you feel. You may have difficulty putting it into words, uh, but you may feel a sense of un, un, like unmotivation. You may feel, uh, you know, a, a sense of just a, a lack of joy. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering why there was once a time when you felt closer to God than you feel right now. What happened to that sense of urgency that you felt at one time to jump in and serve Jesus like you did at one time? Where's the joy? A lot of people right now, it's hard to put into words, but a lot of people uh, really are feeling that lack. What happened to that that joy and the kindness that used to be in your heart now seems to be replaced with a critical spirit, a negative spirit. Uh, why, why are you in the cloud you're in? Why, why do you feel like you're in this place? Maybe we call it a spiritual funk that you can't seem to get out of, right? And we could sit down and we can slice up and dice up all kinds of different reasons why you may be there this morning, right? I just want to tell you, we're not going to have a sermon this morning on five ways to find your sunshine again. Uh, there's times to sit down and kind of psychoanalyze why we feel certain ways and why we get into those different fogs and, and feel those ways. But I, I, just want to, I just want to pose a question to you. If you're a believer and you found yourself there in a way that maybe was described over the last few moments, if you know Jesus, what if it has to do with the fact that you've lost simply uh, you've forgotten your first love? Like the church in Ephesus that Jesus is writing to in Revelation chapter 2. You know, have you, like they did, lost that zeal and that joy and that passion and that affection and that love for God, love for God, love for others that you once embraced at salvation? In other words, what if your lack of zeal and lack of passion is just simply you've got a bad case of spiritual amnesia and you've forgotten the endless treasures that are yours in Christ Jesus? What if the reason that the camera zooms in on our hearts and sees an expression of defeat is because we've forgotten that we're more than conquerors in Christ Jesus? What if we simply have grown cold to the best news that we've ever heard? What if we simply have grown cold to news like this? I was lost, but now I'm found. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was far from God, but now I've been brought near. I was an orphan, but now I'm a child of God. So here's where we're going this morning. As we continue through this Old Testament series called The Gospel Thread, seeing how all of these stories are telling one big story in the Old Testament, really all of God's Word, telling the story of God reconciling all broken things in this sin-cursed world back to Himself through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray that this story this morning that we look at will show you clearly, some of you for the first time, clearly what grace can do in your life 
And for those of you, maybe you in that spiritual funk will show you and snap you out of that place you're in by showing you what you have in Christ and the grace that you have experienced. Stand with your Bibles open. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. I'm just going to read right through it. Beginning in verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him David. The king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there, still, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to him, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, Lodabar. Verse 5, Then king David sent and brought for him the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, and Lodabar, and Mephibosheth. There, I had to mess it up one time. Mephibosheth, all right, tough one to say. The son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord, the king, commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a, had a young son. His name was, was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And here's the summarization verse, verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. For he ate always at the king's table. And he was lame in both feet. Whichever seat as I pray. Father, I pray you would put your words in my mouth, your thoughts in my mind. Father, I pray that this morning you would help all of us get a clearer idea and understanding and that we would grasp at a deeper level the grace that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do what only your Holy Spirit can do and that's to open up our heart and help us to understand your word and apply your word to our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is at the beginning of King David's reign over Israel. We ended uh, in Judges, at the end of Judges last week, and we see a rebellious people in need of a king. Right? And the next book in your Bible is the book of Ruth, presents the, the line of the great King David, who will be the greatest king of Israel that Israel will ever see, but he's not going to be the first king. The first king of Israel, his name is Saul. Saul has everything that it seems like you would need to be a good king. Saul walks in the room and people are like, that's a king I could follow right there. Look at him. Looks handsome. He's tall. Nice beard. Seems to have good leadership skills, right? Seems like he would be a great king. The problem is he was missing one thing that you really needed to be a godly king, and that was a heart completely devoted to God. He was temper temperamental. He was immoral. He was insecure. He ter made terrible leadership decisions. He eventually disqualifies himself, and his, start, his life starts to spiral out of control. And about that time, David, the next anointed king of Israel, an unlikely pick, a shepherd boy from a town called Bethlehem, begins to rise to power. We see David step onto the stage of Scripture for the first time in power in 1 Samuel 17. He's enraged at the dishonor that a giant Philistine is showing to the people of God, and he walks out with a humble trust in God and defeats Goliath. 
And the people begin to parade throughout all of the, the land, uh, singing a song that goes like this, Saul's killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. A song that one person really didn't like, and that was King Saul. It said from that moment forward that King Saul, this is the way the Bible puts it, eyed David. Have you ever got a death stare from like your parents? All right, my mom was good at that, of like giving you the eye across the room, right? He's literally giving David a death stare. He's saying, I'm going to kill him. Well, even though things have gotten a little awkward between Saul and David, David still marries his daughter. The princess moves into the palace, begins to become an emerging young, a bright leader in Israel, a young military leader. And the envy and the jealousy and the insecurity fester in the heart of Saul, and he becomes determined to kill David, tries to hunt him down. At one point, he's throwing spears at his head while David's over in the corner kind of playing a harp. Uh, he is losing his mind trying to assassinate David. He gets really dysfunctional. And throughout all of this, David had several opportunities that he could have killed Saul, and yet he doesn't do it because he remained obedient to God. He does what's right. He's got the heart of a king, a good king, before he even becomes king. Saul actually takes care of the problem as far as Saul being killed. Saul takes care of that himself. Saul leads some men into battle, into a battle that they should have never been in, and Jonathan, his son, is with him, the next in line to take the throne, and they both die, and David becomes king. First few years of his reign are kind of messy. There's a civil war. There's political jockeying. There's still some children of Saul who are still trying to uh, get the throne into a violent uh, you know, struggle um, erupts between the house of David and the house of the remaining house of Saul, and it gets ugly and it gets bloody. And when you get to Second Samuel, you see all of that, by the way, at the beginning of Second Samuel. And when you get to Second Samuel chapter nine, all that drama is behind King David. He's on the throne. He's brought unity among the tribes. They've become a nation unified under his leadership. He's brought peace to the borders. Uh, the Philistines are no longer a national security threat. He's leading well. And now that David is a king in an undisputed position of power, what's going to happen? I'll go ahead and tell you what's going to happen. He's going to give us right here in this story in particular, he's going to give us a preview of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right out of the gate, I want you to know that David's not the Messiah God's people are going to need. Right? He's a sinner. You flip over just two chapters to the right and you'll see how much of a sinner he is. But David in this story... Is a type of Christ. David is a king who points to a better king, and his reign is showing us something of the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that Jesus is building, and the kind of king Jesus is going to be, namely a king who will keep his promises and won't just network with the strong, will call in the weak into his kingdom, will invite the outcasts and the misfit and the rebels to join him in his kingdom forever. Three truths that we learn about King Jesus by studying the story of the life of King David and the first one in this story and the first one is this our king is a promise keeping king our king is a promise keeping king verse 1 says and David said is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake that would have been a surprise for everybody to hear they're not they're not ready to hear that headline if you're around at that time why? Because a new king in the ancient Near East culture when you take the throne you wipe everybody out who rivals that throne you wipe them out who were part of that previous king's family, especially when it's somebody like Saul, right? Who tried to kill you seven times, who tried to throw a spear at your head, right? I can take you, it's payback time, David, right? You get some revenge on the house of Saul. You're in a position of power now. I mean, I can think of some K words that you could, you could do here, right? Kindness isn't one of them. Maybe kill, but not kindness. And yeah, that's what everybody around him would have been confused about as well. Kindness, David, really? Are we really gonna show kindness? And that word right there, kindness here, is a really important word for us to understand what's going on here. 
See, we tend to butcher words in our everyday kind of use, in our everyday English conversations, in the English language. And kindness is one of those words that we kind of butcher. We, uh, we use kindness like in a way like we're trying to communicate, be nice, right? Be prim, be proper, be, be kind, right? Be kind to your brother, be kind to your sister, right? Be kind to kids at school. Like when I use, when I say be kind in my house, often it's defined like this. Hey, stop jumping off the couch with a flying elbow into your brother's stomach. Be kind to each other, right? Please stop shooting each other in the eye point blank with a Nerf gun, right? Be kind. That's what sometimes I mean by be kind. Don't do that. Deeper meaning right here. And it says David is wanting to show kindness. This is the Hebrew word hesed. It's a rich word. It refers to kindness and loyalty and mercy and steadfast love. Some have translated it loving kindness to capture all of that. It's used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the covenantal love of God. God's steadfast love towards His people. It's also used to describe the covenants between people at times like we see with David and Jonathan. When David says, for Jonathan's sake, that should take our mind back to 1 Samuel 20 verse 14. Right, you, you got Jonathan, the son of Saul. He was a he was a loyal friend to David. Remember, David spending a lot of time in the palace, spending a lot of time around the king's family, King Saul's family. He became a, a great friend to and Jonathan, a great friend to David. They became really good friends. It's a great picture of Christian friendship. And there's one day that Jonathan meets David out in the field. Many of you know that story, First Samuel chapter twenty, verse fourteen. And Jonathan meets with him, and I'll just kind of paraphrase. He says, hey, I know things are, he knows things are getting crazy. I know my dad's losing his mind. I know things are unraveling. I know this is not going to end well, right? And I know that God anointing his power is on you to be the next king of Israel, which is a humble thing for Jonathan to say. He could have tried to grasp it the throne himself. But he says, I know you're the next king of Israel, and I know there's going to be a little time that's going to elapse between now and when you take the throne, so please be kind to me, and I'll be kind to you. You have my back and I'll have your back. And if I'm not there when all of this happens and you take the throne, please promise me that you'll be kind to my sons and my grandsons. And David agrees and he steps into a covenant and he makes a promise. And 15 to 20 years have passed since that covenant was made in that field between David and Jonathan when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 9 where we are this morning. And you know what? David hasn't forgotten that promise. How many of us would be tempted to forget that promise? Right? I mean, 15, 20 years have passed. Think about all the ugliness that David's been through, all the messiness of those civil wars and all the strife that he's had to walk through. By the way, when, when, when you read the Psalms, right? M- many of those are written when David is being pursued by Saul. And there's a portion written when David is dealing with everything he's dealing with at the beginning of 2 Samuel. It was a troubling time of his life. So 15 or 20 years has gone by. He's finally at a place of rest. He's finally at a place of peace. He's ruling and reigning. He's on the throne. He's got complete power, right? He could have easily said, listen, I, you know, 15, 20 years have passed. Here I am. You know, Jonathan's long been dead, right? He, you, know, I, you know, I'm just going to kind of move on. I'm not going to remember this. I, would, I, I did not know at that time how nuts saw, I, you know, hence the, the spear's coming at my head. So he could have easily, we could have, easily understand why he would forget that promise how often have we made a promise and not kept it hey i'll call you next week hey i'll i'll come by and see you maybe tomorrow we're promise breakers but this is a king who is not like us he's a promise-keeping king he's a promise-keeping king and this is an important this is an important 
part of this passage to grasp right here, that the kindness, that the hesed that's about to be put on display in this passage is rooted in a promise that David made. And not just that he made, that he's committed to keep. 15 to 20 years later, and that promise is still directing him and guiding him and impacting the actions that he's taking. That's the power of covenant love. That's the power of a covenant promise. So a guy named Ziba comes to David, who's one of Saul's top servants, and Ziba says, uh, yeah, yeah, there's one. He's like, is there anybody of the house of Saul that I can bless? And he says, yeah, there's one. There's a remaining grandson, the son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth. Now, that's quite a name right there. Any of you named your kid Mephibosheth? Right, any of you go with that one there? Right, still available. Right, it's creative. It's unique. Make your son stand out in a crowd. Right, imagine just introducing your son of his name. Hey, this is my son Mephibosheth. Oh, okay. Yeah, I bet he has a great personality, right? Interesting name, right? One remaining in the house of Saul, his name's Mephibosheth. And instead of wiping out the last remaining servant or the last remaining um, person connected to Saul's throne, what, is, what does David do here? He leverages his power to pour out on the most unworthy of candidates, Hesed, the unmerited, unconditional, unearned love of God. You say, why would anybody do this? Why would anybody pour out Hesed on Somebody who's a family member, the last remaining family member of the former enemy king because he promised he would. He's a promise-keeping king. And I just want to real quick, I want to jump ahead because the, the, the question why right there is a good question for us to ask in another place when you go to the cross. Like when you go to the cross, it's important for you to ask the question why. Not just what happened, what the gospel is, but why. Why would God send his only son to die on the cross? And shed his blood in the place of sinners, in the place of his enemies. Why would God give his very best when I was at my very worst? Why would God pay the ultimate price and so show such great steadfast love for me? Why did he do that? Do you know why God did that? Do you know why he, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, did that for us? What made it, motivated this beautiful story of redemption is because he is a God who looked at broken people like us, you and like me, and he made a promise. He promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after uh, our first parent's sin, he made us a promise in Genesis chapter 12, and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, through his prophets, through his mouthpieces, he made promise after promise, I will send a suffering servant, I will send you a conquering king, but he will suffer in your place to save you and to rescue you. He made that promise over and over and over again, and all the promises you find in the Old Testament find their yes and their amen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. At Calvary, you need to know this church, that is not just something random happening. That is not just God going, hey, I think I'll jump in and do something here to try to fix this mess and die for us, for your sin. That's him, that's him making good on a promise he made a long time ago. On the cross, and make no mistake, you see an incredible picture of sacrificial love, but underneath that act of sacrificial love is a God who made a promise to you and to me, and he's keeping that promise at Calvary. We are promise-breaking people, but praise God, we serve a promise-keeping king. Second point, our king pursues misfits, rejects, and runaways. Our king pursues misfits, rejects, and runaways. So David's going to pursue this son of Jonathan. Now, there's something about Mephibosheth in this passage that the author of this passage wants you to understand. What is that? That he's crippled in his legs. He starts with that in verse 3 and ends with it in verse 13. 2 Samuel 4 and verse 4 actually tells us how he became lame in both feet. Mephibosheth is five years old. 
So remember, he's the son of the prince living in the palace. And in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, it says that news comes from Jezreel that, David, or that uh, Saul and Jonathan died in that battle that they shouldn't have been in. So news come, comes back to the palace. It all begins to unravel and news begins to spread. And what is that nurse? What is that nanny thinking? She knows the culture that she lives in. She knows that a new king's going to come in and is going to clean Saul's house out. And he's going to go after anybody that's going to rival the throne, the new throne. And Mephibosheth is one of those rivals. He's, he's five years old. And so she sweeps him up in her arms and she panics and she runs out of the palace with him. And it says in this horrible accident, she drops him. Right? She, she drops him. Uh, you know, it's evidently several feet onto the ground and his legs are mangled, right? And the nurse's name in the Hebrew means you're fired, if you're wondering. Now, come on, man, you'll get that later. His legs never heal properly, right? So he's dropped, his legs are mangled. And at some point, it's, it's, it's a really sad picture. He finds his way, limps his way, gets his way to a town called Lodabar, where a man named Makir has to care for him and it's where he's been for 15 years. Lodabar means literally without pasture. It means land without pasture. Some translate it no bread. This is, hey, this isn't a vacation destination. This isn't Honolulu. This isn't Cancun. This is out in the middle of nowhere, out in the sticks. This is no man's land. This is where, this is where a guy like Mephibosheth, who is someone who is connected to the former king, who is an enemy of or trying to kill the current king, this is where you go. You go lay low in Lodabar where you can't be found where hardly anybody knows you even exist. And I, th- I want you to think about what's going on right here. I want you to think about how sad this picture is, how tragic this picture is. All the helplessness, all the hopelessness, all the shame, all the despair that you see in Mephibosheth. He's orphaned. He's crippled. He's living in a pastureless place. He's the last surviving family member of the enemy, the current king. And since he was little, he's been indoctrinated to fear and to resent David. And then one day, he's been there 15 years. And then one day in Lodabar, somebody looks over the wall and they see something. They see something big in the distance and they can't make it out. Scholars assume that uh, King David in typical Middle Eastern fashion would have sent a courier with, with chariots and with horses. That it would have been a dramatic scene. I want you to imagine what it must have been like in Lodabar as people start to chatter and spread the word about these horses and these chariots that are headed that way. Everybody would have been excited. We're at Lodabar, man. Nobody's out here. Somebody special is coming to visit, visit us in Lodabar. They would have, there would have been anticipation. Everyone would have been excited except one person, Mephibosheth. The caravan gets close enough and they can begin to see that it's the king's chariots and the courier of the king walks into town. He says, hey, I'm... Where's the house of Makir? I'm looking for somebody. Where's the house of Makir? I know where it's at. Down the street, first house to the right. Thank you. Goes down. Knocks on the door. Are you Makir? Yes. Where's Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth begins to limp out of that house. Begins to shuffle his way to that chariot. Mephibosheth, the king, wants to see you. What is Mephibosheth thinking about? Can you imagine what's going through his mind? Can you imagine what that ride, that long ride across the desert was like for him as he rode across the land knowing that the king has called for him? Had it got to be a knot in his stomach, right? You ever experienced that in a less significant way, right? If you've been in a situation like that, get the email from the boss, hey, I want to meet with you, me, you, in the morning, first thing. 
All right, that can either be good or really, really bad. Either I'm getting the promotion or we're packing things up in a box and I'm leaving. You ever get that note? Teacher gets a note, opens it up. Hey, principal wants you in his office, right? I, First Coast High School, I wasn't, y'all, y'all like, you're a preacher? I don't believe this, trust me. Talk to, I'm from Jacksonville. You can find some people who knew me. I was not a good kid in high school. First Coast High School, one day over the intercom, public high school, 5A school, huge. Jonathan Revis, please report to the dean's office. Jonathan Revis, please report to the dean's office. Not good, man. They found out. Didn't do my own algebra homework or something. I don't know. Y'all don't look at me like you always did your algebra homework, right? <laughs> the judgmental stares. My wife doesn't understand that. She's like, I don't get that, you know, when we talk about it. She's like, Every time I was called to the principal's office, they gave me an award or certificate. Like, I... <laughs> Literally this morning, she said, I was friends with, we were talking about this. She said, I was friends with my principal in high school. I was like, friends? Friends? I was like, no, nah, I don't think he would have ever, have ever wanted to be my friend. That's fascinating that you were his friend. That makes your heart drop. But imagine what Mephibosheth's mind, how it's spinning. He, he knows he's a rebel of the king. In his mind, caravans like this don't travel all that way across the desert to a place like Lodabar to pick up a rebel of the king like him for any good reason. He's scared. Mephibosheth gets to the palace and he begins to shuffle in into the throne room of the king. And verse 6 says he falls down on his face and it says he pays homage. And, and David does something unexpectedly. He says his name, Mephibosheth. He knows my name. He knows my name. Mephibosheth just says, behold, I'm your servant. Basically, he's begging for his life. He knew what it was like to live a life of royalty. He had servants serving him at one time. And basically, what he's begging for mercy. He's saying, I'll be your slave. Just let me see another sunrise. Just let me live. I'll wash your feet. And at the same time, simultaneously, he knows that a sword's about to come down on his neck. Last ditch effort to cry out for some mercy. And then Mephibosheth is cut off with three of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Mephibosheth, do not fear. And his eyes lift up to this king. And all of a sudden he realizes, his fears begin to melt, and he begins to realize that this powerful king has pursued a rebel like him, not to kill him, but for another reason. Now, why are we looking at this story this morning? Why did the Holy Spirit place... What sometimes as you read through the Bible for the first time seems kind of out of the blue, little intimate story about Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Why is it here? Here's why. Because there's some of us even in this room today that are Mephibosheths hiding in Lodabar. See, apart from Jesus, this is a picture of you and I. You see it? We're helpless, unable to walk, crippled in sin, lame, outside of Christ. We are existing in a pastureless place living in Lodabar, in our sin, in our shame. And yet it's a story that also shows us hope that there's a king who pursues sinners like us. And if we, like Mephibosheth, come and fall at his feet and admit our sin and trust in the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished, trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins with a heart of humility, agreeing we are sinners and knowing and believing that Jesus is the only way we can get to the Father and throwing all of our faith on that. You know what he says to a sinner like you, knelt before him at his feet? He says, do not fear. And I'm going to pour out my extravagant kindness on your life and save you. But how? Why and how is a good question, church. How does that happen? How is he able to 
How is he able to forgive and how is he able to bring in sinners like us into his family? As we're going to see in just a few questions. It's a good question and it's answered in our third point this morning. Our king pours out extravagant kindness. Notice what the next part of verse 7 says. Do not fear, and this is important, for I will show kindness for the sake of your father. That gives us insight into how Mephibosheth is saved. That gives us insight and gives you insight on how you were saved if you're a Christ follower this morning. See, Mephibosheth's problem was that he had the wrong blood flowing through his veins. Do you see that? The blood of his enemy. The blood of a man who seven times tried to kill David, his grandfather, Saul. That's why he's doomed. Because he's got the blood of Saul running through his veins. But what changes everything, what makes it possible for the king's loving kindness to be poured out on his life, is found in that phrase, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. You see, the wrath that would naturally burn against the grandson of Saul was quenched because of King David's friendship with Jonathan. The greatest problem that Mephibosheth had was his grandfather's blood, Saul, running through his veins. But his hope was in that the blood of another was there as well. Do you see it? In the eyes of David, the blood of Jonathan was more powerful than the blood of Saul. Uh, by the way, I hope, you're, I hope you're right ahead of me here. All right, because there's just not a gospel thread right here. There's a gospel quilt right here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Like I hope as we're reading the Bible, as we're walking through texts like we often do on Sunday mornings, that you're ahead of me here. That when you look at passages, you're looking for the cross. You're looking for Jesus. Remember those old pictures that they were... I remember when I was little, we had books of them, the stereogram pictures where it looks like a big blog and, and blob and pixels. And it didn't look like really anything, just a confusing graphic. But if you stare at it long enough, all of a sudden, like a picture of a bird pops out at you, like 3D. Remember that? In the same way, when you begin as a Holy Spirit filled believer, you begin to study God's word. And when you see Jesus there on every single page, it's like you can't unsee it. In the same way, you can't unsee that image in that seriogram picture. And so I hope you're already there right here. Do you see where this is going? If you're a believer, do you see yourself in Mephibosheth here? The wrath of God should be burning against us today, shouldn't it? There's no reason it shouldn't. You have the blood of your father. I have the blood of our father, Adam, Adam running through our veins. Our first parents rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. We inherited that sin nature. His, listen, His blood, the curse is flowing through our veins. We choose to sin. We are sinful people with a sin nature, born into it. When we're young, we don't naturally do what's good. We naturally do what's bad. So how can we be saved and reconciled to God the Father only through the blood of another? There has, to be an, there has to be a stronger bloodline. And here's the good news. A second Adam has come. Jesus Christ. Yes, I have the blood of Adam, therefore I sin. But I have the shed blood of Jesus Christ by faith that covers me, therefore I'm forgiven. In Christ, there's a blood that covers me. There, in Christ, there's a new blood that covers me that's louder than the old blood. I need my heart to remember this. We need our heart to remember this. Because I have an enemy that wants me to forget it. See, we cognitively can know verses like, He cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. We can know verses about, He cast my sin into a sea of forgetfulness. But I don't know about you, but it's like the enemy has some special scuba equipment because he knows how to go down to the bottom of that sea of forgetfulness and dig some stuff back up and slither up next to me and go, Hey, don't you remember what you did in high school? Don't you remember what you did in college? 
Don't you remember what you did in the military on foreign soil when you were away from God and away from your family? He slithers up next to us and reminds us of stuff that we cognitively know that Jesus has forgiven us of. And what you say in that moment is, yeah, that sin was bad. Yeah, that sin stain was deep, but the blood of Jesus is a better stain remover. One greater than Jonathan has come. And by his blood, we are forgiven. And notice David says that we're not just forgiven, more than that. He pours out extravagant kindness on our life. There's a threefold blessing that Mephibosheth receives right here found in three phrases. One, fear no more. In other words, I'm not going to kill you. Listen, that applies to our life like this. Before I was in Christ, he had every, I had every right to be afraid of a holy God. I had every right to fear. That's the appropriate response in my sin, to fear God's judgment. And yet the New Testament says this, that in Christ, the days of living in fear are over because you've been covered by the blood. Of another. You've been covered by stronger blood. The blood of Jesus Christ and perfect love casts out fear. You don't have to live in fear. Listen, you don't have to live in fear of the king. You get to delight in relationship with the king. Number two, not only do you not have to fear, you see that phrase, restored all that was once yours. David gives him all the land that belonged to Saul. So that family estate that was north of Jerusalem. It all goes back to Mephibosheth. What that means is he has part of the promised land again. He goes from pastures, barren land, no pastures, to a healthy land that's not just given to him, but it's going to be tilled for him. It's going to be worked for him. He gets a staff. He gets a servant with a big team, and they're going to work for him, and they're going to bring bread to him. The third thing is this. You will sit at the king's table always. Next, King David restores something that's been lost for 15, 20 years when his father Jonathan died. And he said, all that's changing from here forward, you're going to sit, you're going to have the right to dine at the king's table always. In other words, I'm not just bringing you over to dinner dinner as a charity case. I'm bringing you into my family. He's at this point in the throne room. He's putting a ring on his finger. He's putting a robe around him. He's bringing him to his table where he will always sit as his adopted son. Hey, what an awesome picture of extravagant grace. What an awesome picture of extravagant kindness that we were once orphans. Now we're adopted sons. We were once fearful of the king. Now we get to delight in and reside with the king. How? You say, how is this possible? How is it possible? Because the king made a promise and is making good on that promise. And it's poured out his grace. Do you see that Mephibosheth understands in the passage we read at the beginning of this? He understands that this is all an act of grace. He didn't deserve any of it. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. Mephibosheth's response shows us that in verse 8. He says, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? He shows us that he knows that this isn't because he achieved it. It's because he said yes to an invitation from a good, generous, loving, steadfast, loving, covenant-keeping, amazing, good king. And I want you to know this. If you think that Christian, if you're here today, listen to this very carefully. If you're here today and you think Christianity has anything to do with you becoming a better version of yourself, you have completely missed the point of biblical Christianity. 
If you think all God wants is for you to work, to work yourself from a weak person to a strong person or wants to turn you from a bad person into a good person, you have missed the hope and the heartbeat of Christianity. You say, well, how do I get eternal life? What do I do? You do nothing. We deserve nothing but His wrath. We deserve nothing but His judgment. Your only hope is to simply say with a heart of faith, yes, to an invitation from a king. An invitation that's not earned, but simply received by grace. And Hesed is poured out over your life forever and ever and ever and ever. Have you gotten over that? Have you gotten over that this morning? Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says it like this. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love. That would have been close to that word Hesed. Which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And y'all know who we are? Y'all know who we are at the end of the day? We're a bunch of busted up sinners. Who God by his grace lifted up out of Lodabar bar and brought him to brought us to his table. That's all we are. It's shown us extravagant kindness that we don't deserve. Think about where we are seated. Think about where we are seated. Imagine dinner at David's house. Think about that. Family begins to gather for dinner. I mean, there Absalom comes in looking tall and handsome, looking like royalty. Son of the king. Tamar walks in, a princess, King David's daughter, takes her place at the table, a royal table, a beautiful setting. Solomon walks in, probably been studying all day, doing his homework, learning different languages. And then all of a sudden they sit down and they begin to hear a noise. Everybody waits. Because it's Mephibosheth and he takes longer to eat at the table than everybody else. And they take his crutches. And the servants come. And they scoot him up to the table and the royal cloth falls down and covers his crippled feet. And every day, he sat at the king's table just like any of the other kids of the king. No preference. He was a child of the king. This is where you've got to turn and see. That's you, if you're in Christ. Just imagine, think about it. You've been seated at a royal table and one day there will be a great wedding banquet and just think about it. you're going to be there if you're in Christ. Think about you sitting there. You're going to be sitting there at a table. There's going to be Moses. There's going to be Paul. Asking Peter to pass the bread. There's going to be Charles Spurgeon sitting there. Billy Graham. With all those great people who made Christian history. And then you slide into your seat and you take your table at, you take your place at that table. And the king sitting at the head of that table is going to look at you with all those other people there and he's going to say, You're mine. You're mine. And you're going to sit at that table knowing you did nothing to earn it, knowing that it was nothing but God's Hesed that was poured out over your life. The amazing steadfast love and kindness and grace that was poured out over your life. Hey, some of you need to experience that this morning. Listen, 
Some of you, some of you need to make sure you haven't forgotten that. Some of you need to make sure you haven't let your circumstances and let this last year and a half and letting all your troubles, letting all your trials, I'm not downplaying how serious those things are. But none of those things take away the best news that has been spoken over your life. And that's in your, if you're in Christ, you are seated at that table. You're a child of the King. And you did nothing to deserve it. And that makes us marvel and worship all the more. I want to share with you a picture of the extravagant kindness and grace that God's shown us this morning. You may be familiar with uh, Team Hoyt, right? Uh, Dick and Rick Hoyt, it's a father and son uh, team who run races together. And they ran uh, 64 marathons together. It's pretty remarkable. They run uh, 206 triathlons together, uh, six Ironman triathlons together. If you know anything about racing, that's an incredible feat. 204 10K runs. Since 1975, they crossed nearly 1,000 finish lines. And yet, here's the interesting thing about this duo. Only one of them runs. See, Rick, the son, was born with cerebral palsy. And as he grew up, not able to bathe himself, not able to clothe himself, not able to do anything on his own, completely physical, physically incapable and dependent on those who cared for him, which was mostly his father. He grew up with all of those difficulties, with a desire in his heart to run. So at 15 years old, he was able to communicate. He was able to graduate high school, but with all those physical challenges, he was able to communicate to his dad, I want to run. He specifically wanted to run a 5K race. And Dick, his dad, was not a runner at that time, but he, he made a way, and he loaded his son up on a three-wheeled wheelchair, and off they went, and run they did. It's a beautiful picture of a son depending completely on the strength and the love of a father. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of our father's love for us and the grace that he's poured out over our lives, the lives of undeserving sinners. We could have done nothing to earn it, You know, he did everything that's needed for us to experience a relationship with him. Take a look at this. 